Oh, good evening. It's nice of someone to have done that, isn't it? That, um, those intros. <laughs> Every once in a while during our year living in the jungle, Martin and I would get what we called the Goonie Goonies. Uh, what the Goonie Goonies was was this feeling that something was about to happen. And it usually meant that we sat with our stuff packed up ready to run because we thought a gun battle or something was right around the corner. One day we both had the Goonie Goonies. We had been walking and used a logging trail for quite a while. And those logs looked pretty freshly cut to me. And I thought the guys with the chainsaws might come back and see us or see that we'd been there and there would be another gun battle and no one wanted that. The other reason I was uneasy that day is a new group of terrorists had joined our group. I didn't know them. Um, we didn't trust them. I resented the fact that they were there because they meant our already meager food supply was going to have to be split even further. And I voiced that concern to one of the guys, and he said, oh, don't worry because today we get more food. We stopped for a rest and waited and waited, and I suddenly realized a group of us was missing. They must have been the ones who went out to get the food. And then off in the distance, I heard gunfire, a gun battle, and everybody started hurriedly packing up their stuff. Everybody but Martin and I. Ours was already packed because we had the Goonie Goonies. A while later, that missing group came running into the camp, and they were loaded with sacks of rice and a bunch of other stuff, and they were talking excitedly. And we formed a, a line and ran down a jungle trail to get away. And as we ran down the trail, I kept hearing the word massacre. But I knew, you know, you don't ask questions right now. Late that night, when we finally stopped to make camp, one of the guys filled us in on what had happened that day. That small group's plan had been to go to the nearest road, and they were going to stop the next jeepney to come by. A jeepney is sort of a small Filipino bus, and they were going to take whatever food was on it. Well, the next jeepney to come by had just been to the market, and it was filled with civilians and all their things. And on top of the jeepney, like they often do, they had stacked sacks of rice. And on top of the sacks of rice sat a man that the Philippine military had deputized, and he carried a weapon. So when the Abu Sayyaf stepped out to stop the jeepney, this man raised his weapon and they opened fire, not just on him, on everybody. Men, women, children, it was a massacre. And when they finally took the weapon from the dead deputy, they found out it wasn't even loaded. They brought back close to 12 sacks of rice that day and all the passengers' things, their purses and their bags. In one bag, they were excited to find this big can of milk powder along with a little girl's clothes, some little pink panties, a tiny towel, and washcloth. And Martin and I sat there in shock that night when a captor brought us our meal. It was hot milk with sugar in it. And we were hungry. Of course, we were going to drink that, but our hearts ached. And Martin's prayer that night was, Lord, we don't know at what cost this food has come our way, but we just pray that you would have mercy and give strength to the families of the people who've died today. And I wonder how many of you might have been praying for us while we were praying that night. So many of you have said, we prayed for you. God would just prompt us to stop and pray. And um, I want to thank you for your prayers. Every time you prayed, we needed it. We knew people were praying for us. 
and I never want to pass up the opportunity to say thank you. I sat looking into my cup of warm milk, wondering if that little girl had survived, the girl whose milk I was holding. A few days later, I found out she had not. To make matters worse, she was the niece of one of the Abu Sayyaf raiders. He had helped gun down his own sister-in-law and niece. We have such sad stories about people helplessly trapped in a very harsh religion, thinking that they're doing Allah a favor by seeking revenge for any wrongs committed against them, thinking that if they pray enough and fast enough and give enough alms to the poor and wear the right clothes, then maybe, well, maybe you guys don't know what Muslims believe. Could we take the next 10 minutes or so to have Muslim school? Um, we'll just kind of talk through some the of their beliefs. I know that some of you know Every this, day we turn on the TV. And uh, so let's learn a bit about them. So we'll talk about some of the things we have in common with Muslims and some of the differences. And first of all, Islam is the religion of the Muslim. Muslims are the people. Islam is the religion, just so you don't let those terms confuse you. And before I go any further, I'm going to make a disclaimer I don't want you to think that I think that I'm an expert on Islam because I'm not. All I know is what I learned living with these guys for a year. When we were first taken hostage, they transferred us from that speedboat that they'd taken us hostage on to a fishing vessel that we commandeered so we would have some more room. And it was dusk. The sun was setting. And it was time for evening prayer. Muslims are required to pray five times a day facing Mecca, and that was the first problem that night. We were out on the ocean. They didn't know which direction Mecca was, and they were all talking and shrugging their shoulders, and finally they got it figured out, and they started their ritualistic bowing down, you know, touching their forehead to the ground, and I asked Martin, are they praying to the same God we're praying to? And Martin said, I have no idea. So we started to listen to them and learn what they thought about who Allah was. And they told us some things. They believe that Allah made everything. He is sovereign. He's almighty. He's all-knowing. He's the judge. He's the greatest. There's none greater. He hears and answers prayer. He's merciful. He's the provider. Well, that sounded a whole lot like Jehovah to me. But then there were some things that didn't sound like Jehovah God, you can bribe Allah. He plays favorites. He changes his mind a lot. You can follow all his rules, and he doesn't have to allow you into paradise like if he's in a bad mood on judgment day. Well, we know who the true God is, don't we? We know who he is because we know him. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. It's that that awesome thing that happens when the Holy Spirit comes in, when we know Jesus as our Savior, and we don't worry about that anymore. We know who God is because we know him personally, and his name is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. They have 100 names for God. Uh, mankind knows 99 of them. One is a secret. And around their necks they wore, they used the word rosary, a string of beads. And 
So they had 99 beads for the known names of God. Each name denotes a character quality that God has. So there were 99, and then at the bottom, there was a special bead for the unknown, the secret name of God. Have you ever noticed that a camel is smiling? A camel has a big smile on his face. Have you ever wondered why the camel is smiling? He knows the 100th name of God, but he's not telling. Um, one day I asked one of the guys, is one of your names for Allah love? And he thought a long time, he said, no, no, Allah doesn't love us, and we don't love him either. We just do what we're supposed to because he's God, he's Allah. And I thought, oh, I know the 100th name of God, God is love. They have a lot of the same important people in their beliefs, prophets, they call them. They know all about Adam and Abraham and Moses, Elijah, David. David, that's a freaky one. They think David was a great, you know, a mujahid, a great holy warrior. What did David do when he killed Goliath? He chopped his head off. That's what those guys would do. When we would come to a village and they wanted to gain control or prove a point, they would separate a few guys off to the side and chop their heads off. David was a great holy warrior. Jesus, they know all about Jesus. They believe that at the end of all time, Jesus is going to come to earth again riding a white horse. Have you ever heard that? That's in our scripture. There will be a battle called Armageddon and Jesus will judge the world. That's in our scripture too. But do you know who Jesus is coming to judge? He's going to judge those of us who believed he was God because, of course, they believed Jesus he wasn't God. He was just and a mighty the mightiest prophet. prophet. His and name was Muhammad. Here's a big difference. Um, Islam, they told us, is all about justice. We want justice for all the bad things that have happened to Muslims in times past. And they go really far back in history because they say Allah is a God of justice and we need to help him get that. Martin would tell them, I guess the gospel is all about mercy. We need someone to have mercy on us because if we get justice, we're all in big trouble. Martin quoted some verses one day to Suleiman, one of the leaders of the group. Because of his mercies, we're not consumed. Because of his great mercy, he saved us. And Suleiman said with a sneer, well, where's the justice in a religion like that? I said, you know, Suleiman, we've all agreed that everyone has sinned and God's going to judge our sin. And we believe that God provided someone to pay for our sin so we don't have to. And Suleiman said, I'll pay for my own sin. Several years ago, on my birthday, the phone rang early in the morning and I thought it must be one of my sisters calling to wish me a happy birthday, but it was the Associated Press. They wanted a statement from me. It seems that very morning, a leader of the Abu Sayyaf had been killed in a gun battle in the Philippines. Uh, his name, they said, was Suleiman. Well, first of all, what I thought was, what are the chances of that happening on my birthday? It's like God tapped me on the shoulder and said, Gracia, I have not forgotten you. But then the next thing that hit me was Suleiman's words, I'll pay for my own sin. And that was my statement to the Associated Press that day. 
that I was so sad that Solomon started paying for his own sin that day, that he didn't have a sin bearer and the importance of a sin bearer. Here is something that's the same when you compare Christianity and Islam. Muslims believe that everyone has sinned and that God will judge everyone, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But if God says so, you'll go to heaven, and if God says so, you'll go to hell, and everybody agreed that no one wants to go to hell, and that's why there are so many terrorists. The only way for a Muslim to be absolutely sure that they're going to heaven is if they die in jihad, in holy war. Holy warriors bypass the iffy judgment of Allah, of God, and they go straight to paradise. And that's what makes them willing to strap explosives on their backs and blow up buses and plow into buildings because then they can be sure of heaven. Here's a difference. Muslims believe that they can work their way to heaven. Uh, that's why they pray five times a day. They have fasting days. They give alms to the poor. They wear the right clothes and the head coverings and they eat the right foods. They follow all the rules in hopes that, well, here's their belief about the judgment. They believe that at the end of all time, everyone that's ever been born will stand in a long line beside each other waiting to be judged. And they'll stand in the posture that they begin their praying in and they'll stand totally naked for 40,000 years. They'll stand that way when they can't bear it anymore they'll start going to the prophets. They'll go to Adam. They'll say, Adam, go to Allah. Ask him to judge us because we don't want to do this anymore. And Adam will say, I can't go to Allah. I'm not worthy. So they'll find Abraham. Abraham, go to Allah. Ask him to judge us. We can't bear this anymore. And Abraham will say, I can't go to Allah. I'm not worthy. And they'll go prophet to prophet. They'll find Jesus. He'll say, I'm not worthy. And then they'll find Muhammad, and Muhammad will go to Allah and convince him that it's time to judge mankind, and Allah will take all your good things, you're praying five times a day, you're wearing the right clothes, eating the right foods. He'll weigh that against your sin. If your good outweighs your bad, you go to paradise. If your bad outweighs your good, you go to hell. Isn't that what a lot of Americans believe? Don't a lot of your friends and neighbors think that God has this cosmic scale up in heaven? He's putting all your good things on one side, all your bad things on another, you and you hope says, that at right? the end of time your good outweighs your bad. If there's one thing on your bad side, you can't enter heaven because God is holy. He cannot, he will not look on sin. And that was the point when Jesus died. He took our sin on himself. But he didn't just take our sin, he traded us something for it. He gave back to us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it so well. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're totally forgiven because of what Jesus did for us. And that's something a Muslim can never know, how it feels to be forgiven. Well, that's sort of the end of Muslim school, except for one thing. Please don't be afraid of Muslims, because when you're afraid of something, you stay as far away from it as you can. You keep it always at arm's length. That 
lady that you see in the store in her burqa. You and she have a whole lot in common. Mostly, they want the very same thing you want. They want to have a good home, live a peaceful life, a place where their children can thrive. And who knows, but God might be working in her heart to make her wish there was something to fill the vacuum in her heart. If we don't reach out to Muslims and befriend them, how are they ever going to hear the gospel? You can't share the gospel with someone unless you have a relationship with them. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel's powerful. And it's not just for the Jew and the Greek, it's for the Muslim as well. But it's not likely that we can share it unless we visit with them. God is bringing the nations to our doorstep. So let's show them hospitality. Invite them to church. Don't buy into the lie that they'll never come. This might be the first time in their whole life that they've had the freedom to go to a church just to see what goes on there. But if we look at Muslims with fear and shy away from them, we'll never be a witness to them. I was speaking in Independence, Missouri several years ago now and signing books and a lady came up and she said, Gracia, God's just given me this burden for Muslims and, and I don't know what to do with it. She said, I don't even know any Muslims and I'm not going to go find any because I'm a busy person. I'm up to here. I have children and why do I have this burden? And I said, well, let's pray and ask God why. Several weeks later, I got an email from her. One morning, she was running to the store uh, for milk. She'd forgotten to get it the, the day before. And there, laying in the road at the stop sign was a wallet just laying there. So she stopped the car and got out and got the wallet and looked at the ID and saw that the man who it belonged to looked like he might be a Muslim. And she took the wallet to their address, and sure enough, they were a Muslim family, and they were beside themselves at the missing wallet, and they were so grateful to her. So the next few days, she prayed, and she took them a fruit basket. And then she took them flowers from her garden in the fall, and she was planning to invite them to Thanksgiving dinner so they could see what goes on in an American home at Thanksgiving. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. That's going to be on a quiz, I think, a little bit later on tonight. So hope you were listening. Maybe our job's to love Muslims, to do good to them, to pray for them. Let God use you. I think he'll do it. Well, I thought we could do some show and tell tonight. Um, I've learned that not only kindergartners like show and tell, so I have some of the clothes that I wore in the jungle, and I thought I'd show them to you. These were delivered to the American Embassy several days after my rescue. I don't even know how they knew they were mine, but here they are. You guys saw the story of how we were <clears throat> taken from our beds down to a waiting speedboat, pulled away from the dock, and we suddenly realized these were Muslims who had taken us hostage. And I knew if these were Muslims, I wasn't dressed properly. What I had on was what I'd worn to the beach the night before, cut-off shorts and, and a T-shirt. You know how they keep their women So one of my first covered. prayers was that I would have something decent to wear. 
um, that night they transferred us from the speedboat to a fishing vessel so we would have more time. And as we got on the fishing vessel, one of the guys threw this malong at me. A malong is a long piece of batik material that's been sewn up the middle to make a tube. And this became my skirt. If you were to go to the marketplace in the Philippines, you would see lots of women wearing these, not just Muslim women. You might even see a man or two. I never got used to seeing 18-year-old guys with M16s walking through the jungle with a skirt on. That made no sense to me. This was my most prized possession. That first night on the boat, this was our blanket. This was our changing room, my changing room. Um, every once in a while, they would allow us to go to the river for a bath. And when I talk about a bath, we would just step into the stream or the river with all our clothes on and get ourselves wet. And if we had soap, we would soap up under our clothes, and then we would rinse off, and we would drip dry, unless I had a change of clothes. And sometimes we did. They would order clothes for us, but then we would lose everything in gun battles. We would drop everything and have to start all over again. If I had something dry to put on after a bath, they weren't going to let me go find a private place to change in the jungle because they thought I might not come back. And they were right. So I just got in this and would get this in my teeth so our hands were free and um, put my wet stuff in a pile and get my dry stuff and put it on. And sometimes it was awkward and you got stuck, but it worked. This was our towel at the river. This was my bathroom. I had the same problem every time I needed to use the bathroom because they weren't going to let me go find a private place to go. So I would just step off the trail in front of you know God and everybody and just get this in my teeth so my hands were free and go out there and do what I needed to do. Well, I'd never done that before. And the first few times you try that, you don't hit where you're aiming. And this was a messy malong till we got to the next river. Um, this was our suitcase when we were first taken hostage. We didn't have a backpack or anything, and the guys who were out on duty would come running in, Sundalo, Sundalo, soldiers, soldiers, pack up. And we would grab everything we owned. We would throw it into the middle of the malong, tie up the inside ends, and kind of throw it over our shoulder and run. This was our stretcher. Martin died in our 17th gun battle. And in those gun battles, we would have dead, we would have wounded that we needed to deal with till we could get to a Muslim village where they could handle the problem. So the first thing they would do after a gun battle is chop down a tree. This is my poor excuse for a tree that I borrowed tonight. Um, they would thread the malong onto the tree you know, that's unnerving. You've just been in a gun battle. The military's pursuing you, and they stop to chop down a tree. Like they're not going to hear that and come running. The wounded guy would lay down in the middle. One guy would get on this end. One guy would get on that end, and they would just carry him for days, for weeks through the jungle, however long it took. This was my Kleenex when I sat around crying, which was every day because I always felt sorry for myself. I always wish this weren't happening to me. 
I always missed my kids. And you know, when you cry, your nose runs. That was a great big hanky. They saw that it was difficult to run through the jungle with a skirt on, so they started ordering what they called pantos. Um, these don't look like they've been in the jungle, do they? Um, last week or the week before, I stayed somewhere and I got bit a lot while I was staying there and I thought I might be taking bugs home with me, so I fumigated my luggage and for the first time in 14 years, I, I washed my hostage clothes so they don't look so hostage-y anymore. But when these came into the camp, the guys would snatch up the dark green, the dark brown, the things that would camouflage well. So we would make a good target for the military. We were happy to have these. Uh, They're thin. They never kept the mosquitoes from biting right through them. Um, When we were taken hostage, um, all I had was a T-shirt on, and I felt like I needed something with long sleeves, and I asked God for a shirt that would cover me a little bit better. My first prayer wasn't very specific, and after our, one of our first gun battles, my guard, his name was Sakaki, he came running up and he said, ma'am, ma'am, over there in that farmer's hut, I found this shirt for you, and he held up the ugliest shirt I'd ever seen psychedelic designs, loud colors. It had flowers all over it. I thought, yeah, I will be the target. I said, Sakaki, I think someone else needs that shirt. He said, no, this is for you. And I wore it for a long time till one day Lookman gave me his shirt when he got a new one. I was so glad to have this. Um, It was heavy. It was hot for the tropics, but the sleeves were long enough They even covered my fingertips, and I was just um, glad to have every inch of me covered. I think the most important thing to them that I wore was my head covering. We call this a turong. This is not the one I wore in the jungle. This is uh, one I went back for a visit, and I saw this in the marketplace, and it it was pretty, so I got it. Um, I kept my head covering on all the time, even when I slept. The guys were always after me to stick my hair up under my head covering. You know, when you haven't had a bath in four weeks, your hair is going to be stringy and awful and hanging in your face. And the guys were always after me to stick my hair up. And I thought, these guys must not like my blonde hair. Well, I found out later, they believe for every hair that sticks out from under your turong, That's how many thousands of years you will spend in hell. Well, I don't plan on going to hell. He who knew no sin became sin for me. Uh, It doesn't matter much if I keep covered like that or not. Isn't it good that you have somebody covering your sin problem? I can have a lot of problems right now, but it doesn't have to be my sin problem. Um, Somehow, because of our experience, people are very um, open to sharing their hard times with me because I can sympathize with them. I don't think it's normal to go to the grocery store and have some lady that you don't even know come up and 
grab you by the hand and say, would you please pray for my 14-year-old daughter? She's just drifting away from us. She's getting very distant, and we don't know what's wrong. Or go into the gas station and a man walking up and saying, could, could you pray, pray for me today? I'm going in for hip surgery tomorrow. I think people just have an affinity with me because I've been through a hard time. Some people have been there at the bottom, wondering how they ever got there. It happened so fast. Or maybe for some people, their trial was a long time in the making. But what I've learned is when we're at the end of our rope, we look up and we seek God because there's nowhere else to look. That's what happened to me in the jungle. I began seeking God as my comfortable life fell apart. I suddenly knew that this problem was too big a problem for me to fix this time. I suddenly got a good look at myself. I wasn't the heroic missionary wife who had it all together. I was tired and hungry and stinky. I had constant diarrhea. There was no place to take a bath, no clean clothes to change into. And I started feeling more like an animal than a human being. But worse than that, I saw my heart for what it was. I saw my hatred. I coveted the food that they had that they didn't share with us. I was faithless. I started blaming God for the situation that I found myself in. And it wasn't pretty. And at one point, I just gave up and asked God, God, can you change me? I'm sick of being upset and depressed and bitter can you help me? Sometimes I think we are in such a way. Have you ever felt that way? We've heard that God is faithful. In every circumstance, he's faithful. And as I asked God to change me, he started like doing it. The first change I remember had to do with water. At the beginning of our captivity, for four or five days, we were on the ocean on that fishing vessel that the, um, that the Abu Sayyaf had commandeered, and we finally got to land, and we were all excited because land meant the cell phones would work, the sat phones would work, the Abu Sayyaf could tell the government negotiators their grievances, the government would make concessions, and we could all go home, right? Wrong. That first day on land, the military found us, and we had our first gun battle, and we had to start running for our lives through the jungle, and here was this 40-something-year-old lady who was not fit, who was expected to keep up with these young guys who were used to living in the jungle, and I couldn't do it. And I especially couldn't do it without water, and there was no water. And as we ran down the trail, I began talking to God about that. God, I need some water. I really, really need some water. God, if you don't get me some water, I'm going to have to sit down. And after a while, I realized what I was doing. I was nagging at God. And I made a conscious decision to change my prayer. And I began to pray, God, I think you know what I need. Help me to be patient till you bring it to me. And then God started answering on all sorts of prayers. Um, one day, I remember Martin prayed, God, would you do something special for us today so we know that you know that we're still here? And someone brought us a Coke. And the miracle wasn't that the Coke came into the jungle. The miracle was the guys didn't take them all and gave us one. But even as so many prayers were answered, 
our prayer to go home, it's, it's like it wasn't reaching the tops of the trees. It was falling on deaf ears. And at almost the year mark of our being held captive, I got sick of that prayer not being answered. And I thought, okay, if God's not going to answer my prayer for release, I'm going to start praying for a hamburger. Because I thought if I was eating a hamburger, I was out of the jungle. You kind of go around the back door with God. <laughs> Martin laughed at me, just like you are, but I was serious. And I fervently prayed for that hamburger. Right about Easter time, someone paid a ransom for us. And you can imagine the excitement when some of the money came into camp. This was it. It's what we'd all been waiting for. We could all go home. And the leaders of the Abu Sayyaf sat down and had a big meeting. And they called me and Martin over. And we sat down on the ground with them. And they said, someone's paid a ransom for you. But we've decided it's not enough. And we're going to ask for more. And I begged them not to do that. I said, this is not going to turn out well. We're sick of this. You're sick of this. Just take the money and let's go home. But they hardened their hearts and they were greedy and they asked for more money. But for a while, the group had money and that very night they snuck us off of the island of Basilan, which by that time was teeming with soldiers. And for less than 24 hours, they took us to a little Muslim fishing village by a big city. And someone went into the city and brought back to Martin and me hamburgers, french fries, Cokes. They'd heard that Americans like that sort of thing. And it's like God hit me over the head. Can I not supply a hamburger for you in the jungle? I'm God. I can do anything. And when we got the hamburger but not our freedom. We started thinking something must be going on here. God must have a plan in all this. And we both really thought that neither of us would make it home alive. And our prayers began to change. Of course, we kept asking God for our release, but our prayer became more. God, you must have something to teach us here. Would you help us to learn it really well? The biggest change in me had to do Quiz with time. my attitude. Jesus told us how enemies. to handle the problem of dealing with enemies. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. You are so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. He said, if a Roman soldier asked, you know, the enemy of that day, right? If a Roman soldier asked you to carry his stuff for a mile, because he's got lots of stuff and he doesn't have a horse, you carry it two miles. If he asks you for your shirt, because he's cold, or maybe he's just a jerk and he wants your shirt, you give him your jacket too. God started teaching us love for our enemies. There was Ahmad, um, one of the guys holding us. He was about 14 years old. There were young kids there as well as older guys. Um, for the most part, though, the kids did the menial tasks, the things the other guys didn't want to do, like fetching the water or carrying the heavy loads. But Ahmad was different. 
because his uncle was the number two man of the Abu Sayyaf, and he carried an M14. And since he had a weapon that gave him status, even though he was just a kid, and he was very proud of himself. Well, you know how 14-year-old boys are, right? They're always hungry. And we would go for days sometimes with nothing to eat, and then food would come into the camp, and I would watch Ahmad steal our group's food and eat it all by himself. We kind of traveled in groups and cooked in groups and slept in groups. And I was filled with envy at him. I was the lowest hostage. I was an American, and I was a woman, and that was two strikes against me. And Ahmad decided I was someone he could boss around. And as we'd be walking down the jungle trail, he would follow me, saying one of the few English words he knew, past ditter, past ditter, past ditter, faster, faster. I couldn't go any faster. We were in a line. One day, uh, they allowed Martin and me to go to the river for a bath, and they asked Ahmad to be our guard. Well, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be out on guard duty or hanging around in his hammock, and he had to take the Americanos to the river. So already he was upset. We were down there taking our bath, and he started in on me. Pastor, pastor. So I started going faster, faster. I guess not fast enough for him because he started picking up rocks, throwing them at me. Pastor, pastor. Well, I had it with that kid. <laughs> I wasn't used to being told what to do especially by a 14-year-old, and those rocks hurt. And I just laid into him in English. I said, Ahmad, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take the longest bath in the history of all baths, and you will never get back to your hammock. Well, he had no idea what I was saying, right? He just knew Mrs. Burnham was mad again. And here came the rocks till Martin very sternly said, stop that. A few weeks later, we were in a gun battle, and Ahmad was wounded in the leg. We were really in trouble. There was military everywhere, and because of that, they couldn't get Ahmad to the medical help he needed, and he started to get feverish and yell out of his head a lot. They carried him for weeks. They would have to help him with everything, and one day I could tell he was very upset about something, and I found out he had messed his pants. There'd been no one to help him go to the bathroom. And I thought to myself, this thought came from the Spirit of God. <laughs> what if this was my boy in this situation? Because I had a 14-year-old boy back at home living with his grandparents in Kansas. If this was my boy, I would want someone to help him. And I went over to him, and in my faltering Cebuano, the only language we shared a little bit of, there were five or six different languages being spoken amongst these guys. Some of them couldn't even talk to each other very well. I asked him if I could do his washing for him. And as I took his clothes down to the river, and as I washed them out, and as I threw them over the bushes to dry in the sun, in that moment, God completely changed my heart towards that kid. He gave me a love for him. I can't explain it. Ahmad eventually went mad. He went ranting and raving crazy. The last time I saw him, they were sneaking up to get down to the island. pier, and as we went through the hut, I heard noises, and I thought there might be a big rat or something, and I looked over there. There was Ahmad. He was skin and bones. His hands were tied to one side of the hut. His feet were tied to another, 
There was a sock stuck in his mouth so he couldn't cry out. There was a hat pulled down over his eyes so he couldn't see. And I have to wonder where Ahmad is today. Is he dead? Has he recovered and he's walking down a jungle trail pestering some other hostage? Is he still crazy somewhere? I'm so glad I had the opportunity to be generous with that boy because I can look back on him and not have any regrets. But it's because God changed my heart and gave me the grace to help someone instead of hate them. And God's in the heart-changing business. That's what he does best. And God's still changing me. Be warned, though, I don't have to tell any of you this. Change is hard. Mark Twain was right when he said, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> we get comfortable with life. Everything's going well, the way we've carefully planned it to go, and we're really good at that because we have the resources to be good at that. But all of a sudden, whap, this problem hits us. And it's not a small problem this time. It's a big one. And we have a choice to make. We can trust ourselves or we can trust God. When we choose to trust God with our problems, we come to know him in a whole new way. And I would encourage you to never hang a do not disturb sign on your heart's door. <laughs> Allow God to do what he wants to. Because if we go through life and we're just always comfortable, but we don't learn important life lessons, like forgiveness and trusting God, wouldn't that be sad? We want to be changed so we look just like our Lord Jesus. I want to end by telling you a story about my daughter that I don't tell very often. Um, Mindy attended New Tribes Bible Institute in Wisconsin after high school. She chose that particular school because she wanted to get a good Bible education and not spend the world. She didn't want to go into debt. And at NTBI, the staff are full-time missionaries. You know, they're supported by others, so they aren't paid a salary and also to keep costs down the kids do the work at the college they mop the floors and they do the grounds work and they work in the kitchen so they don't have to hire it out to be done and the kids call their job that they're assigned their campus ministry well Mindy had just arrived at the school and she called me to say hey mom word is the job you don't want to get here on campus for campus ministry is cleaning toilets because it's hard and it's yucky and it takes a lot of time every week, but that's probably the job I'll get. I said, Mindy, you won't get that job. What, why would you say that? But guess what job she was given? <laughs> cleaning toilets. Well, I wanted to encourage her, so I wrote her this letter. Mindy. Your cleaning toilets assignment reminded me of a story that your dad used to tell. It's what he spoke about at churches. Martin watched a documentary on aircraft carriers. They interviewed guys with all the different jobs on board the carrier. Guess what each guy said? They said, my job is the most important job on this carrier. The cooks said it. If we don't do a good job cooking, the morale on this ship will fall apart. We have the most important job here. The airplane mechanics said the same thing. If anything is wrong with the plane, the whole mission will fall apart. Of course, the pilots said they were the most important because that's what pilots think. That's a poor pilot joke. Sorry. 
the guys working the hydraulics that thrust the fighter planes off the carrier thought they had the most important job. If we aren't exacting with our job, a plane that cost millions of dollars will end up in the ocean. There was one guy in the whole documentary that didn't feel that way. It was the guy who cleaned the toilets. He had a bad attitude. He said, I've made two big stupid mistakes in my life. One was joining the Navy and one was getting this stupid tattoo. I don't know what the tattoo was anymore. Um, it didn't reflect how he felt now. I don't know if it was a Navy tattoo or some girl's name and he didn't like her anymore. You know, the guy cleaning the toilets could have chosen to have the same attitude as all the others. He could have said, there are over 3,000 people on this aircraft carrier. If I don't keep these toilets really clean, people are going to get sick and not be able to do their jobs. I have the most important job on this carrier. Every guy, well, almost every guy, on that aircraft carrier was so excited to be there. He felt he was really making a difference in the overall plan of the Navy. Wouldn't it be neat if we felt the same about reaching the world? Everyone doing what God gives them gifts to do, excited about the role they have in that job. So be encouraged with your campus ministry, Mindy. You have the most important job at NTBI. I love you, so proud of you, Mom. We've all been given a job, haven't we? We've been given gifts and a job to do. Are you doing your work as to the Lord as if it were the most important to bring him glory? Your job may seem insignificant to you, but it is not. Someone needs the light that you have. You're an important part of reaching the world with the gospel, and your strategic involvement is vital. Thanks for having me tonight. I've loved being with you this weekend. To God be the glory. They talked about a question-answer time. If you guys are ready to get out of here or have cake or whatever, that's fine. Don't ask a question. <laughs> uh, but I'm happy to answer questions if you have some. Gracia, I don't have a question, but I have some new information about Islam. I just came from London, where we had some training on, on uh, Islamics. And I learned that a second reason why um, a Muslim man wants to be, die in jihad is that anyone who dies in jihad not only goes straight to paradise, but he can be an intercessor for 70 more people and get them into paradise. And if a man has several wives, the least loved one is afraid he'll choose his men, male buddies and not even choose her, and her own husband won't get her into heaven, into paradise. But that was an, another amazing thing that I had not heard of before. You know, we heard that as well. Okay. That's why women, well, women are divided. Some women would say to those guys, don't join that group, you're going to die early if you do. But some women would say, yes, you should join jihad because women aren't going to go to heaven. Uh, paradise pretty much basically because yeah. there are certain times of the month that they're unclean they can't do their bowing down their praying so already they're pretty much deemed for hell 
And if they can have a son that dies in jihad, that son will, will stick up for the mom. Yeah, they, they told us that. Now, part of Muslim teaching is that, and I'm not sure if this is in the Quran or the other teachings, is that of all the people in hell, 80% are women. That's, that's their low status. Yes. Uh, someone asked Muhammad one day, I wasn't there, but that's what <laughs> the Abu Sayyaf told us this. They asked Muhammad one day because he had, you know how John saw heaven? And, um, well, Muhammad had that kind of a thing too. And Muhammad saw heaven and people asked him how much, uh, what it was like. And he said, well, there weren't many women there because women are ungrateful. That's what Muhammad said. I was just going to say, as far as the toilet thing goes, I've always just said it's a, I'm a custodian. I always just say it's a, a chance to lean in front of a lot of twin thrones. So it's, it's also where I do my best praying. Is it? Yeah, what I'm doing is I'm just doing it out when somebody else is around. So it's kind of that too. But as far as Muhammad, you know, the guy was mar married to at least 15 women, but after getting married to 40, and after being married to one for 45 years. And he said most of his money was because she inherited it. They, the Abu Sayyaf would always two, tell us, or three um, or four wives, Muhammad? but you're supposed to treat them all the same. So if, if wife number one, if you feed her chicken, wife number four is supposed to get chicken too. So um, they have as many wives as they can afford. So how much was the ransom? The ransom that was paid, they asked for a million dollars, a million dollars for Martin, and his, his companion could go free. That would be me, because women don't have value. So a million dollars for Martin. But you know what happened? They got sick of it, because time, they thought, you know, give this six weeks, and we'll get our ransoms, and we'll all go home. So it kept going on and on, and... Finally, they said, we'll take anything, and a wealthy businessman paid a third of a million dollars for Martin, uh, for us, $330,000. But by that time, the group had split, and um, the FBI delivered the ransom. The CIA knew where we were, and they took it to the wrong group. So... Um, the people that held us only got a little bit, and that's why they needed to ask for another ransom. Um, you may have already alluded to this, but did you ever go back to where you were captured? And if you did, what was that like? I didn't go back where I was captured, no. Um, several years after I got home, the State Department asked me to go back and testify against some of the Abu Sayyaf. And um, I traveled with FBI agents and wore bulletproof vests. And you would have thought I was Jessica Simpson. There were paparazzi everywhere chasing us through the streets. So, um, and then since I'd been back, my kids wanted to go back. But I knew what it would be like with all the media. So the next Christmas, we snuck there. 
We didn't tell anyone in America that we were going. We didn't tell anyone in the Philippines that we were coming. And we just, I wore this crazy Farrah Fawcett wig <laughs> disguise, and we just snuck in there and um, spent a few weeks visiting. But no, I don't think I'll ever go back down there. Um, I was going to go back last summer to the, to the prison where, uh, were you here this morning? Okay, the prison where some of these Abu Sayyaf are, and I was going to visit them, and they caught wind of it there, and I got an email from the head of the, their FBI, and he said, you can't come back here unequivocally. Um, we don't want to be responsible for you. If anything happens, it's another big incident. So uh, my daughter is saving her money. She's going to go um, in January because her name's not Burnham anymore. And she's going to go in and meet with some of those guys, hopefully give her testimony there in the prison. I'm, I'm wondering if you could say something about the other hostages. There were other hostages mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. And were they at the same place or were they collected from other places? Um, the day we were taken... There were 20 of us taken, um, and one by one, the very wealthy, of course, got ransomed out right away. They knew how to play the game, um, but one by one, the others got ransomed out. Uh, they were all Filipinos except three of us, me and Martin, and a, Phil and a, a businessman, an American businessman from California, and I'm sorry to say they beheaded him. Um, about a week into our captivity. But the others, you know, just one at a time were ransomed out till it was just me and Martin and a Filipino nurse, a Filipina. A, a lady Filipino is a Filipina. Maybe you've learned that. Um, if a lady Filipino is a doctor, she's a doctora. Um, anyway, um, all three of us were shot that day and Martin and Edebora died. So some of those people that were hostages with us are friends on Facebook now. Um, kind of keep in contact. How old were your children, and who was keeping them, and then what happened to them over this? Mm. I mean, I know they got to Kansas, but yeah. like when? We had gone down to do some work on a southern island, um, the pilot on that island's father had died, and he had to go back to Iowa for a funeral, and they asked Martin if he would come and, and do their flying down there. So we gave our children the choice. Do you want to come to Palawan, or you want to stay here? You can stay with the neighbors, our coworkers. And they chose to stay with our neighbors. That was God's grace, wasn't it? Well, if the kids had come with us, we wouldn't have gone to Dos Palmas. Uh, so whatever. But... Um, as soon as we were taken hostage, the, the State Department and our mission organization sent them back to live with their grandparents, who were tribal missionaries with New Tribes Mission. Um, but they were on furlough, so they kept the children there in Kansas, and they just extended their furlough till, till I came home. Oh, I'm sorry. I think they were 14, 12, and 11. I guess I need to ask them. They might have been 13, 11, and 10. I just can't remember. Uh -huh. But, you know, I got home, and 
and the kids seemed so well adjusted. And um, then I started meeting the people that God had surrounded them with. They went to a public school, but their teachers knew Jesus. And um, Mindy, Mindy's computer teacher would come to school with his Bible, and he would call her up to the front, and he would say, Mindy, this is the verse God gave me to give you today. So, sorry. Hi, my name is Carlene. Hi. Um, listening to your story, ma'am, I have you have you uh, on focus on the family? Were you part? Did you come there one time? I Dr. did. Dr. Dobson. Were you there? No, no, no. Oh. I was a listener, and oh. I think I heard your story. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's been on several outlets. Okay. Um, when people don't know my story at all, and it's mm -hmm. like somebody on an airplane or something, I'll say, you know, go to Netflix uh, to Locked Up Abroad, Philippines, and that's our story. But it's several places out there, but that's the easy one to tell people. Okay. So. Yeah, that's what I was saying, because I said I heard this story uh -huh. of, of Focus on the Family. That's been a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> that I did that, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. thank you so much You're for welcome. sharing. You're welcome. Good. Are we questioned out? We're going to pray for you, and then we're going to go have cake. And uh, you can buy some books if you would like to. And if any of you would like to come around her, just come right, right up. Um, you are a wonderful woman of God who has imparted so much to us this weekend. Uh, we don't really know how to say thanks, but thank you. And may the Lord reward you. So anyone, any of you, just come, and uh, we're just going to ask the Lord to continue to lead you, direct you. And uh, we're just so grateful that you would come to Harrisburg, Brother New Christ Church. Thank you. Well, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this servant of yours, we are so grateful that we got to hear the story of her life and that of Martin. We thank you for the way that you've brought her through, and we thank you for where she is today, and we ask that you will continue to use her mm -hmm. in the lives yes. of people in churches, yes, yes, in yes. businesses, yes. and continue, Lord, to just make her a beacon yes. and, and bless her, mm -hmm. keep her well, and uh, continue to anoint her life for this ministry, and continue, Lord, use her for your glory. We just bless you for her, mm -hmm. and we pray um, that you would bless her on the way home, protect her, and continue your hand upon her ministry. And may many, many more Christians be encouraged, and many others who don't know you come to Jesus yes. as a result of hearing her story. Yes. We pray the blessing of the Lord upon her, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Did you want to say something? We're going to go have cake Lord and punch. And, and thank you for coming. You we don't usually have a Sunday night, but thank you for coming out on Sunday night. God bless you.